Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If you have your Bible, if you'll take those and turn to the book of Exodus, please. Exodus 7, and I want to read the first four verses. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God. See it with a small g, you see that? So it doesn't mean God, it's not blasphemous. You might translate it this way. When you are in Pharaoh's presence, you will be to him like a God. The Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he shall send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt." And just pause just a moment. We, we use that phrase sometimes, Lord, lay your hand upon us, Lord, lay your hand. This is not a happy phrase. This doesn't mean, this is not nice. The idea is God to lay his hand, to stretch his hand out against Egypt. It's a very frightening phrase. That I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. The word is sometimes translated plagues. Put your hands on your Bible and let's one more time pray. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit will come upon us and come within us. Open thou our hearts and minds that we may receive all that you have for us. In the wonderful name of Jesus, the strong Son of God, amen. On May the 26th, 1785, George Washington wrote in his diary, among other notifications, the weather, the temperature, other matters. He said, tonight at supper, I welcomed into my house two preachers, Mr. Francis Asbury who is the bishop of the entire Methodist church in the burgeoning United States, and the other Dr. Thomas Koch. That is all he said, except for this one thing. They asked me to sign a petition, and though I was in favor of what they asked, I did not feel that it was appropriate for me to sign the petition. And I didn't. Francis Asbury wrote in his diary, Today we were entertained at Mount Vernon by the president, George Washington. And we asked him to sign the petition urging that all the slaves in the former colonies and in the new United States should be freed. And he saying that he felt it was not appropriate for him to sign a petition though his heart was with us, declined. I wonder, don't you, 
what difference it would have made if George Washington had signed that petition. Maybe we would have been spared the bloodiest war in the history of the United States. Maybe hundreds of thousands of American boys on both sides would never have been killed. Maybe the anger and the angst and the division, brother against brother, state against state, would have been spared. We'll never know, of course. And I, I think I can understand why President Washington was saying, maybe it's not appropriate for the President of the United States to sign a petition, but one can't help but wonder. The other thing I notice is this. What boldness. What boldness for two preachers to go to dinner at the private home of the President of the United States who owned slaves and ask him to sign a petition that all the slaves should be freed. There is the ministry of confrontation, that prophetic ministry. Do not think for one moment that it's fun, and if it is fun to you, you need to stay out of it. Don't think for one moment that it's cost-free, and if you expect it to be cost-free, you certainly need to stay out of it. But that God has called the church and voices within the church at various times to confront societal and personal evil in the parts of those that are in power is indisputable. There are four major aspects of American history that had to be confronted culturally and prophetically by elements of the church. The first was abolition, the abolition of slavery. The major voice for the abolition of slavery was the church. It was a Christian voice, not simply a, a cultural opposition. It was the voice of those who said, in Christ, we cannot own another human being or deprive them of life and liberty. It was a Christian voice. Harriet Beecher Stowe's, who wrote to the tune of John Brown's body, what was to become the marching song of the federal army. And it is a, a the, when you read the words of it, it is a, it is a incarnational prophetic statement. It's hard. It's hard to hear. She says, I see God in the watchfires of the Union Army. When I look on the hillsides and see a thousand Union campfires, I see the hand of God. And then she said, he, God, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. In the in the marching boots of the Union Army that trampled out the vintage in this state, Sherman's march from Atlanta to Savannah just about burned this state to the ground. She said, that's God. For all of the slavery and all of the evil and all that they've stored up year after year after year, all of the wickedness that's been done in the name of the economy of the South, she said the Union Army is the hand of God. 
It's hard, must have been hard for Southerners to hear. You know, what is one of the more remarkable aspects of contemporary American society is that the battle hymn of the Republic is now sung in Southern churches. We have moved way beyond the prophetic battle over the abolition of slavery. Thanks be to God. The second major prophetic battle in American society continues to wage, and that is against alcohol and drugs. Prohibition, which was a a failed and misguided amendment to the Constitution and did not resolve the issue, was still the result of the activity of a prophetic church as saying that it's, it's wrong for people to drink themselves and their lives and their families into oblivion and that the voice of the church when it is the clearest spoken is to say that this kind of addiction of alcohol and drugs is not of God and we oppose it unalterably. The third major prophetic battle that has raged in the United States was the battle to end the wickedness of segregation. Abolition was finished. But the Jim Crow laws in the South, particularly, not exclusively, that segregated the races by law, it took a prophetic voice of the church, not exclusively among African-American churches, but certainly the leading voice of that was Dr. King. In his letters from a Birmingham jail, that's, that's the voice of prophetic confrontation. This is wrong. He said, this is just plain wrong. And here's something that we're going to have to deal with, and that is that there were white, evangelical, blood-washed, Christian, Bible-believing preachers who refused to stand up and denounce segregation. And we are going to be blessed in... Indeed, if God shows us mercy, not to stretch his hand out against us for that. It was a wicked, wicked season. The lynchings and the the laws that prohibited blacks from being in the same doctor's office. Couldn't go in the same door. Had to stand aside on street corners and sidewalks. I thank God that at least we can say this, the voice that stood up against segregation as a legal reality in this country was the voice of the church. And now we are embroiled in yet the fourth and greatest of these perhaps, and that is the struggle against this national genocidal mania of abortion. It, it, see, here's the problem with preaching on abortion is that if it can feel like you're preaching to the peanut gallery, that, you know, preaching on abortion in a Christian church where virtually everybody is opposed to abortion isn't exactly prophetic. This is not costing me anything tonight. Uh, but, but the church itself I'm talking about, beyond our walls, 
We must not let go of the fact simply because the laws are this way or the culture is this way. We must not let go of the fact that part of our responsibility, not our total responsibility, but part of our responsibility is to speak prophetically to an evil that has cost more lives than all of the wars that we have ever fought. Some of the couple of guys from the staff here, Tracy and I, went to dinner tonight, and we were just talking about this before. They really didn't know what I was going to preach tonight, but but there is, I understand the the impulse to say, um, look, let's let's bring people into the church. Let's not get all riled up over you know a, abortion or something like that, and and not not preach against things. Let's preach for things. I do understand that. On the other hand, that would, I don't know that that would have satisfied Martin Luther King with regard to saying, well, let's just, let's just preach for things. If more white preachers in the South had stood up in their Baptist and Methodist pulpits and said, this is evil, you can vote me out, but this is wrong. So we, 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 we confront this issue. What, is, what does it mean, the prophetic voice against those things which are either done by powerful people or by powerful nations? So we have this first one. God sends Moses against Pharaoh. There, this is not simply a confrontation. It is primarily a confrontation to free the Hebrew slaves and to move them out of Egypt and to the land that was promised to Abraham. That is primarily the point. However, there is another point here, and it is the prophetic denunciation of the culture and idolatry of Egypt. Remember what God says here. Pharaoh will harden his heart. I want you to say it. I want you to go and say everything, but he's going to harden. He's not going to listen to you so that I may stretch out my hand against Egypt. There has to come a time where the church can find its voice like Moses did to say, this is wrong. See, it wasn't just slavery. This was a, this was a genocidal issue. Remember, Pharaoh had ordered that all the, all the Hebrew male babies should be killed. I don't, I don't see how we can, I don't see how we can stifle the prophetic impulse to say something is wrong. Something is wrong at the heart of the soul of a people when they are willing to see newborn babies killed. That's wrong. I mean, this is a shocking thing for us to realize that we are in some ways on the verge of aligning ourselves with an idolatrous, pagan, ancient Egypt. Let the babies be born, the girl babies. There's sexual implications of that. Let the girl babies live. But the newborn baby boys, kill them. No. 
What in the world is going on in America when there are laws that are being passed that are allowing mothers and doctors to conspire whether or not a newborn baby that has endured by God's almighty grace, abortion, an abortion attempt, and that baby to be born alive for them to make the decision to kill it. Are we then Egypt? Are we the kind of idolatrous pagans? Somehow or another, I, I, I understand nobody wants to say this, but, but we need to be able to say this, this is evil and God cries against it. Well, it's uh, in the struggle between Moses and Pharaoh, it's power against power. It's kingdom against kingdom. Now, um, Moses operates first in the power of Egypt. He, he kills this Egyptian soldier. So it's a false start. He wants to align himself with the, with the Hebrew people. He's going to say, I too am Jewish. I'm with you. But he does a right thing in a wrong way. Probably God is not all that enthused over us when we try to speak prophetically to the point of manslaughter. If we don't have that clear in our minds... If we don't have that clear in our minds that we cannot struggle with the power systems of this world in their power. If we don't have that clear in our minds, then in the name of anti-abortion, we unleash third-rate psychotics who shoot abortion doctors in the name of Jesus. We must denounce that as well. You don't have the right to burn anything down or blow anything up or shoot anybody. We have the power to denounce prophetically, but we don't operate in the power of Egypt, which power we then oppose. Moses, Moses kills somebody. We don't, we can't stand there. We can't go there. We can't walk there. This is, this is a very important issue. And it's a, it's a, a terrifying balance because you're always afraid. One is always afraid. I am at least when you speak prophetically that something is wrong. It's totally wrong. It's, it's under the judgment of God that somebody, some nutcase is going to decide that he's the judgment of God and he's, he's wrong. That's the power of Egypt. We don't, we don't have any Christian mujahideen. We don't have that job description. That's only in Islam. Jihad, jihad is an Islamic thing. No, we don't have any Christian jihad. Muhammad came carrying a sword. Jesus came carrying a cross. So Moses, Moses operated first in the power that he opposed. But when he came back, from 40 years, when he came back from the backside of the Midian desert, when he came back to confront Pharaoh and to confront Egypt, he came back in the power of Almighty God. God said, this time, this time you don't have a sword in your hand. This time you're not killing anybody. This time you go with nothing in your hand but your staff. And then there are these series of confrontations, these judgments, if you will. We call them plagues. These judgments that came upon Egypt. The first one is just absolutely, I don't know, it's comical. Moses throws his staff down. 
and it turns into a snake. And Pharaoh says, I'm not impressed with that. My guys can do that. So he calls his magicians in. They throw their staffs down. They turn into snakes. Pharaoh says, what do you think of that? Moses' snake eats their snakes. Moses says, what do you think of that? You see, what I'm trying to show you is that when we speak, when the church speaks, finds and speaks its prophetic voice, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that we have to operate in the same power because we do not have access to that power. That is not our power, and that's not the kingdom of God. That's that's the other kingdom. That's the kingdom of darkness. But the power of God is indisputably superior. There are all these, you know, he turns the, I won't go through all of them. He turns the river into blood, the frogs and all the, the one I like the best is when Moses strikes the ground and the sand turns into, into fleas, into gnats, into lice. And so Pharaoh says to his magicians, all right, now you do it. And they say, we can't do that one because that they say, is the finger of God. That's the finger of God. El dedo de Dios. That's the finger of God. That is a Hebrew idiomatic expression that means the Holy Spirit. It's the same finger of God that wrote the law on Mount Sinai. It's the same finger of God. In Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus said, if I, by the finger of God, have done these things, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So these Egyptian witch doctors they say, we can't duplicate this. This is the spirit of God. Moses power to confront Pharaoh is confirmed by the hand of God stretched out against Egypt. It was the God of Abraham versus the gods of Egypt. But it was also the denunciation of the eglomania of Pharaoh, the idolatry and the genocidal mania of Egypt. It was God's judgment, not simply to release the Hebrews, but his judgment on the culture and power of Egypt. And they have never recovered. Second, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14 in the New Covenant. Matthew chapter 14. I want to read verses 3 through 12. For Herod had laid hold on John. That's John Baptist, not John the Apostle. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. So let me just make it clear. This is Herod who has taken his brother's wife away from him and is living with her in sin. For John said unto him, John said to Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept. The daughter of Herodias, 
danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon Herod promised with an oath that he would give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being beforehand instructed by her mother said, give me here John Baptist's head on a charger and a plate. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And Herod sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. This is the confrontation between the prophetic voice of John Baptist and Herod. This is different because this one is not about the power of Herod's kingdom or the Romans of whose under whose power he ruled as Tetrarch. This is a personal confrontation to the personal wickedness of a leader. Now the prophetic voice of the church reaches a whole new level. This is, this is not the state that is in some kind of moral or social compromise. This is where the prophet says to the king, you are in sin. This guy, John Baptist, this guy, he was, he was a wild man. This guy didn't care for anything. He, he, he was completely unique in his generation. And Jesus said of him, there's never been a, a person born of a woman, ever been a person greater than John the Baptist. What praise? It was John the Baptist in the womb, who first recognized Jesus in the womb. Yes, yes. Unborn baby to unborn baby. Yes. What, what anointing must have been on this man. What a, what a blaze of prophetic authority. And look at the contrast with Herod. He's dressed in camel's hair. Herod in the purple robes. He is, he is anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, Herod is anointed by Rome. He moves in the power of the Holy Spirit. Herod moves in the power of out-and-out out carnality. Herod fears the people. He wants to kill John. He's tortured. Herod is tortured. This is a complicated, complex, and conflicted man. He fears John. He thinks he is a, probably a prophet. He wants to kill him because he's denouncing his incestuous adultery. And he wants to kill him, but he's afraid to kill him because he's afraid of the people. And then this teenage girl dances for him and flames his lust to the point where he says, I'll give you anything you want up to the half of the kingdom, anything you want. But her mother has already told her, I know what this, I know what this old guy is going to do. He'll offer you anything. When he offers you anything, you ask for John the Baptist's head. I want John the Baptist's head. Now he doesn't want to kill John. He's tortured. Now he doesn't want to kill John, but he's, he's embarrassed in front of all these people. He's already made this promise and he, he's afraid that if he welches on the deal, everybody will laugh at him. So he is moving in the fear of people. John the Baptist is moving only, solely, totally in the fear of God. When the prophetic voice of the church is at its best, 
when it is his, when it's clearest enunciation, thus saith the Lord, it is when he's under the fear of Almighty God. And then finally, there is a contrast of victories. It seems like Herod wins. John the Baptist, you know, there are things that people will say to you, and they think they're quite clever, and they're not only not biblical, they're quite stupid. And here's one of them. God will never call you to anything that fails. That's not right. <laughs> Listen to Dr. Mark. God called John the Baptist. <laughs> Herod cut his head off. God called James. Herod killed him with a sword. God sent Jesus of Nazareth. They nailed him to a cross. <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> Every now and again, some college kid, when I was a president of two different universities, some college kid would come up to me and say, Dr. Mark, will you lay hands on me? I want the anointing of a prophet. I say, absolutely. Kneel down. But let me just say this to you before we pray. God has consistently for thousands of years jerked his prophets through knotholes. They've been thrown down in wells. They've been sawn asunder. They've been stoned to death. They've been rejected and despised. They have been torn to pieces by lions. They've been thrown in lion's dens. They have been thrown into fiery furnaces. They've had their heads cut off and they've been nailed to a cross. Kneel down, son. <laughs> and I've had many of them say, wait, wait. I need to pray about this a little more. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a small matter. This is a huge thing. In the short term, in the realm in which Herod operates of power and carnality, Herod wins. Herod cut his head off. Somebody's telling you God disapproves of your adultery and your incest, and you want to shut him up? Cutting his head off will do it. The only thing is, in any way that is eternal and significant and immortal, John won. John won. That's what we have to keep in our minds. It can look like we're losing, but in the power of God, we're winning. It can look like darkness is in control, but the light is on the way. It can, look, it can look like the kings of this earth are in control of everything, even nations, kingdoms, laws. It can look like the kings of this earth are winning, but the king of kings will lay his hand upon them. When we move in the fear of God, we have no fear of them. That is why, listen to this, that is why the powers and principalities of darkness and the people that agree with the powers and principalities of darkness not only hate the church, but fear the church. They fear us because we do not fear them. We fear God. Somebody's always, always talking about phobia. I've never, I've never heard anything like the phobias that we can have nowadays. Phobia means Fear. It means fear. The fact that you disapprove of something doesn't mean that you have a phobia of it. It may be used that way, but that's not, doesn't mean you have a fear of it. You can know 
what Islam stands for, know what it means, and that it is a violent and blasphemous religion. It doesn't mean you have a phobia of it. It just means you know the reality. But what I want to say to you is the kingdoms of this earth have an actual Christophobia. They are afraid. They denounce. They say there's no God. There's no Jesus. There's no judgment. There's no heaven. There's no hell. They denounce it and denounce it because the louder they say it, they are trying to convince themselves. They live in fear that he will return. Now I want to just leave you one last one and we'll be finished. Again from the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll do this very quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And this is how to respond. What if we'll never know? We'll never know. But what if Pharaoh had fallen on his knees in front of Moses and said, What have I done? Killing these Jewish babies, holding people in bondage, holding people in slavery. What have I done? Wonder what, wonder what the book of Exodus would read like. God said he will never do it, and he didn't do it. What if Herod, when John Baptist stood outside the palace and said, you, you adulterous swine, take your brother's wife and live in the palace. You're in adultery and incest. What if Herod had come out and knelt in the street at John's feet and said, oh God, what do I have to do? What if he had made that woman get out of his house? We'll never know. But here's one. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up and it grew up together with him and with his children and it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man and the rich man spared to take his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that had done this thing shall surely die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and the master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? And thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of his, in the sight of the sun. And for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David did what Pharaoh wouldn't do. 
David did what Herod wouldn't do. When he was confronted by the prophetic voice of authority in front of the public over which he ruled as sovereign king, he said, I did it. I did it and I repent. The Holy Spirit probes us. The prophetic voice of God usward is the Holy Spirit. So he probes us. I know what you did. I saw it. I heard what you said. I know what you thought. I heard everything. Nothing is hidden from me. And there's judgment for that. We can fight back like Pharaoh. Stiffen our neck. And it says in the Bible that God will lay his hand on us. God forbid. God forbid. Or we can do like Herod. Hate the people and try to shut the people up through whom God speaks to us. Or we can do like David. We cannot use David's sins to justify our own sins. But we can use his repentance upon which to model our own. And that is to say, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I have sinned. I've preached. I'm going to close with this now. I have preached in prisons on almost every continent of the globe. I love to preach in prisons. I just, it means a lot to me to preach in prisons. I have never once ever preached in a county jail or a city lockup or a state penitentiary. I've never once preached in one that nobody got saved. <laughs> never once. But I've preached in Lions Clubs and Civitan and Kiwanis and, and LaGrange. And I, if I didn't name yours, I've named, I've, and only one time in my whole life have I ever seen anybody saved at a civic organization. In South Georgia, I preached in the, in the Kiwanis Club and the county sheriff got saved. Later, I found out he was under indictment. <laughs> so I felt like I got a prisoner saved by faith. <laughs> now, what does that mean? It means that we can come and sit in a nice air-conditioned church wearing our nice clothes and drive home in our nice cars to our nice houses. And it's hard for us to hear the Holy Spirit say, you've sinned. It just, the voice just gets drowned out. But you get up every morning in a jailhouse with a stripe down the side of your leg and a bell that tells you when to eat and when to sleep and when to work and when to go back to your cell and everything that happens. The bars on your cage say you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. I never have to convince convicts of sin, ever. They know they've sinned. It's the president of the bank. It's the head of the women's club. It's the chairman of the Lions Club. It's hard for him to hear the Holy Spirit say, you've sinned. And the only answer that will prevail is I did it. Have mercy on me. Pharaoh's answer brings judgment on a nation. Herod's answer brings personal judgment. David's answer brings forgiveness and redemption. 
You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.